Welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we explore interesting career and life stories that will help you find more meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in your life. As usual, at the end of the podcast, I'll provide some reflection and summary thoughts. My guest today flew a plane solo before even driving a car, and he does many things with many people and many organizations, including in the not-for-profit or for-purpose sector. He's received an OAM, which is the Medal of the Order of Australia, for his volunteering and services to charity. Listing all of the organizations he's helped or serves on would take too long, but some will get mentioned in this podcast. He is the founder and CEO of the Global Impact Initiative, which is doing innovative work in the impact investing space. His name is Giles Gunasekera, OAM. Welcome to The Purpose Edge, Giles. Thanks very much, Phil. You've done your research. Um, really, oh, I've done uh, a little bit. <laughs> I'm really honoured to, uh, to be here today. Thank you. Excellent. Now, there's so many touch points and interesting things we can cover here. So I figure we'll start close to the beginning. And you are a first-generation Sri Lankan-Australian, and uh, therefore, I presume cricket runs through your veins? Yes, yes. Uh, cricket is the, uh, the number one religion in the subcontinent, uh, and especially in Sri Lanka. So yes, it, it does run through my veins. Both as a as a as trying to still play it, um, but also uh, yes, a very avid watcher. Watcher, indeed. And uh, but if we go back to when you were much younger, I believe around the age of six, you had some, I guess you could say, negative experiences in sport and school, and and that included cricket. So, mm. can you tell us a little bit about, a bit more about that experience? Yeah, I had um, you know my. Well, firstly, I guess when we talk about racism, my my first uh, experiences race, with racism was really uh, the first day of school, walking into school with my parents and and being called racist names uh, as I was walking into the uh, the playground, which you know at the time you you know um, it it didn't really sink in, but you know upon reflection, it was really interesting in that. Um, and interesting in that my parents' reaction to it, and and it, it wasn't dissimilar to most migrants' um, reaction to racism, uh, which was just ignore it and get on, get on, get on with it. Uh, and you know, we were raised, uh, you know, to be very thankful uh, for being in Australia, for having the opportunities of being in Australia. But unfortunately, that also came, you know, at a cost, and that was to to downplay, to ignore racism, and um, you know, and 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 just kind of carry on, uh, which in today's day and age wouldn't happen. Uh, but that was something that was you know, pretty much the norm, and it wasn't just you know my family and 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 our culture; it was across all cultures. Um, but really, you know, racism really peaked for me on, on the cricket field, uh, and it was, you know, it was very much a love-hate relationship with cricket, uh, you know, and and and, and still is uh, because I absolutely love the game. Uh, but as a child, um, some of the most challenging experiences that I that I had, uh, particularly between the ages of, of, of six to 16, uh, when I stopped playing cricket uh, at the age of 16, just because I couldn't handle it anymore, uh, was on the cricket field. And it was, you know, the so-called sledging, the jibing, you know, the taunts, um, that happen, uh, particularly, you know, when you're batting, uh, but, you know, in, in other parts of the game and sadly, you know, didn't have anyone uh, on my team that, you know, that, that, that could back me up or, you know, that could put, it, put an end to it or put, or put a stop to it. So, you know, I dealt with it, you know, on a pretty regular basis for about 10 years. And then, you know, at the age of about 16, I decided that um, I just didn't want to, you know, go through that um, as much as I loved cricket and got back into cricket um, and probably as a, about the age of maybe maybe mid-30s, I'm going to say. Um, so took a good kind of 20-plus year uh, break. Um, and the only reason I started playing cricket again is because I was approached by a whole bunch of other Indians and Sri Lankans to start a cricket club. And uh, I thought, oh, that seems like a good idea. Um, you know, playing with playing with good friends, playing um, uh, you know with 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 people from my community, um, and yeah, did that. And you know, that cricket club has now morphed into a tennis club, a golf club, a netball club, um, and uh, yeah, it's just a great um, you know opportunity for people to uh, you know to get together of all races and religions. 
but it is largely subcontinental background, uh, particularly the cricket team. And yeah, it's just been a, a fantastic experience. And when I say I'm still trying to play cricket, I, uh, you know, so 15 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm still playing cricket. I've still got a lot of things unresolved and things that I need to achieve. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I'm, uh, I'm still playing, uh, because I've got, I've got goals that I need to achieve, but, um, uh, I'm also just really love the game, uh, have always loved the game and enjoying it even more now playing, uh, with people, uh, that respect the game and, and play it properly. So have behaviors changed? I guess looking at the way young kids behave to adults, I don't know if there's some fundamental differences there, but your experience now, is it fundamentally different or there's still, uh, I guess, some lingering areas, problematic areas? Uh, there's definitely no racism um, on the field uh, that I hear or um, or that, that anyone hears. Um, unfortunately, some of that sledging element still is around. Um you know the taunting and and people thinking that it's just part of the game to uh, you know to do that, which I definitely don't like. Um, when, when I've captained the team in the past, I've had players that have engaged in that, and I've physically you know sent them off the field um, to go and um, think about them. You know, think about the way that the game is played and to think about their behaviour. So um, yeah, like to, like like to uh, you know we, we definitely you know uh, you know. You put put forward and uh, you know uh, demonstrate the values you know that we all believe in as a as a team and as a club. Uh, but yeah, some of it is 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 still around. Uh, you know, when my son played cricket, uh, you know, you, you did hear odd things. But yeah, thankfully, it's not it's not racism. But you know, some of it is kind of it will, a lot of it is bordering on um, harassment and bullying, which is which is not great um, and, and definitely uncalled for. Um, it's not necessary, it's not needed. So I'm hoping that over time, you know, a lot of that behaviour gets stamped out because it's an awesome game, you know, cricket. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great team sport, really enables you to build relationships. There's a lot of time hanging around, you know, a lot of time talking to, to your friends, to your colleagues, to your teammates. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, but yeah, there's there's still some things that need to be stamped out. Yeah, and we're having this conversation two weeks on, roughly, from an incident in our Australian Football League code where Jamara Yugal Hagen, an Indigenous player, was subjected to racial uh, abuse um, while he was playing on the field, mm. and uh, and that comes of roughly thirty years after Nicky Winmar, another player, famously, mm. I guess, made a gesture to to react to that, and Jamara did the same thing, and. When I watched that, I was just absolutely gobsmacked at how incredibly well Jamara uh, held himself um, mm. in that situation. And looking at the interviews, I thought, wow, I I would like to think I'd be that strong in that situation and the way he yeah. calmly addressed and spoke through it. But I don't know. And I guess I may never know. But what what's your take on on those sorts of incidents and, and the way some of our, our younger sports people today are, are able to react well or not? Mm. Oh, look, I just think it's, um, really sad that it still happens, and and sadly, if you look at the types of racism and and the racism that happens, particularly in sport, you know, sadly it happens to a lot of Indigenous players, um, and a lot of the time it's because well, it, because they are fantastic players, uh, but there is something really, you know, there there is something embedded into people's psyche and cultures that, you know, that somehow make them um, target Aboriginal players, um, you know, uh, say these really awful things. I mean, Adam Goods is another, you know, example there of, you know, without doubt, you know, one of the AFL's greatest players whose career ended um, with racism. You know, that was, and, and if you watch the Australian Dream, if you listen to any of his podcasts, um, you know, it's just really, really sad that, you know, a Australian of the Year, a Aboriginal, proud Aboriginal man, someone who won numerous best and fairest awards, um, Brownlow medals, you know, club champions, grand finals. He literally did it all and his career ended because he couldn't stand 
um, the racism that, you know, that was, you know, displayed towards him, not only on the field, but, you know, predominantly off the field, you know, through the taunting and the, you know, what was said out loud, what was said um, behind closed doors. And the AFL, you know, as an organisation, as a body, um, have admitted that they didn't deal with it well. Um, you know, and we, the hope is that bodies like soccer, you know, Football Australia, so soccer and uh, NRL and you know, Cricket Australia, you know, start learning from, you know, learning from these really poor experiences. And Cricket Australia has been really, really good, uh, particularly if you look through, you know, they work um, with the ICC on the World Cup and the way that they've embedded um, you know, diversity and inclusion into World Cups and, and 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 different other events that happen. You know, it's definitely moving in the right direction there, but it's just really sad that um, you know these things um, you know still happen uh, and and that racism exists and it's verbalised and and people are somehow comfortable in verbalising it too. So you know the the quicker we stamp it out and do it forcefully, um, you know, and publicly. And support these players. And as you say, like it is really difficult, um, you know, to talk about it, to constantly, you know, constantly be engaged in it. And, um, you know, the way that some of these players, you know, articulate their feelings, uh, you know, post these events is, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, you know, it's, as I said, it's, it's incredibly sad that it happens, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important, uh, as it always is to speak out and, and to stop the behavior. Yeah. Now, I, I'm letting listeners know, I did ask you if you had any favourite quotes and sayings, and you gave me three, and I'm going to introduce all three at various points <laughs> in our conversation, Giles. Um, but the first one I want to go to, because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about now, is you you had one from Nelson Mandela, and it was, the greatest glory in living lies in lies not in never failing, or sorry, let me start again. The greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. And although maybe um, being subject to racism isn't falling, um, it does play that theme of having the energy to rise again when you've been through something tough and maybe relentlessly go through um, tough yeah. situations. So how hard is it, given you've been in that situation you know, in a long period of your life there when you were younger, how hard is it to muster the energy to just get up again and again? It's really difficult. Um, you know, it's not only happened on the sporting field but it's happened in a work environment you know i've worked in a very white collar male you know white male dominated environment it's happened um certainly uh not as much in your in your face or visible but it's, it's certainly happened behind the scenes um and sometimes it's been visible as well so it's it's been something that you know from the age of six or age of five from school you know through to now um you know um as 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 someone that works um you know in in a white collar industry um it's it 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 happens uh, it continues to happen as i said um yeah it's probably not as visible um you know now and and certainly with the work you know that we do um in impact investing it's it's definitely less visible um it's 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 almost you know non existent uh but yeah it's um I, you know i I don't regret anything, Phil. Um, you know, while I am sad that it's happened, I'm I'm probably more not probably I I'm sadder for the fact that people have had those thoughts um, and have chosen to act that way because it just exhibits a lack of understanding and a lack of appreciation for what diversity brings to particularly to a place like Australia and. No, I am constantly frustrated that, you know, we do talk about diversity here in Australia, but we don't actually do it. You know, we we talk about diversity from a gender perspective. And yes, it's happening on corporate boards and it's happening in organisations. But, you know, that's that's an important and that's an important part of the equation. But, you know, what about diversity in terms of race, in terms of religion, in terms of ages? You know, we're not starting. We're not seeing any of that on on corporate Australia boards. Um, so, you know, the, you know, what, what it's helped build in me is resilience. Um, you know, that is definitely the great learning from that and being someone who's always been very goal orientated, being very action orientated, um, you know, that experience of, you know, rising every time you fall, um, and being able to do that, um, has, has been great. Um, you know, that experience has 
has helped to build my uh, resilience. Um, I think there would be nicer ways to build a resilience than, <laughs> than through, you know, racism, harassment and bullying. But, you know, that is the learning that I've taken out of that. Uh, and also, uh, you know, on being on this journey of seeing, you know, the racism hopefully continue to, to um, diminish. I'm not going to say um, it's totally gone, but certainly, you know, diminished. But, you know, if we see what happens, you know, continually in, in, in corporate Australia, um, in corporates around the world, in government, you know, harassment, bullying, sexism, racism, it's still very prevalent. Uh, you know, like, thankfully, it's coming more to the surface now and, and it's been called out. Uh, and it's been exposed. Uh, not as much of that has happened in the past, but you know, I guess that's the transition that we're going through now, where you know the un the unacceptable behaviour um, is being called out, and uh, in in all parts of society. Uh, but it needs to continue to happen, and and ultimately, it just needs to be stopped. Yeah. <clears throat> now, a slightly more positive spin on I guess some of these issues is looking at the gender side. You were the first male cashier at the fast food outlet called Red Rooster. <laughs> Tell us uh, about that. Yeah, it was, um, it was about the age of 14 or 15. Um, you know, I said to my manager, how come uh, all the females are out the front and all the males are out the back? And he looked at me very quizzically and said, I don't know, Giles, but why don't we do something about it? Um, and that was a male, uh, that was a male manager. So, um it was fantastic because, you know, basically his workforce doubled overnight because um, there were many females that were working out the front that wanted to work out the back um, and and vice versa. So, um, you know, that happened. You know, we kind of tested it um, in a little branch in Frankston on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, it then got rolled out nationally um, uh, and, and then you know, pleasingly started to notice, and I'm not going to take credit for, for, for this, uh, but pleasingly started to notice that other fast food outlets, you know, started doing the same. So it's pretty much the norm now, right, where, um, you know, males and females will, you know, work in customer-facing roles, um, as well as out the back, you know, preparing food. Um, and uh, I'd like to, like to say I had a little part to play in that, in my, uh, my, my, my little branch of Red Rooster in Frankston there in Victoria. Well, it just goes to show the power of a question, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but um, I think also it, it does highlight um, the power of um, not only that question, but someone being receptive uh, to that question. And, you know, quite often, you know, I, I, another quote I really like is, um, you know, it's the, it's the right of the oppressed um, to, to speak up, um, but it's the, it's, it's the obligation of those witnessing to to speak out, um, and you know very much uh, you know, uh, and and I'm not certainly going to say that I was a, a, a oppressed, um, but you know we see this constantly on a day to day basis where females particularly um, are speaking up uh, quite rightly for their rights uh, because they are still not treated the same way as as males in the workforce um, in in most parts of society. Uh, but it does take a male uh, quite often to, you know, to, you know, to back them and to, uh, you know, to be their champions and to make those changes because they are in, in, in places of power. Um, and so, you know, from a gender equality perspective, this is where, you know, men and women have uh, equally as an important role is that, you know, men holding those positions of power need to be able to and, and, and should be able to um, support women to ma to make those changes. Um, it's it's great that women are, are, are speaking speaking up as I, as I mentioned, but uh, you know the change can really happen um, from uh, particularly you know through males um, through males influencing other males through other, through males speaking out. Um, and there's some great leaders you know around that that are doing that and continue to do that. But we need that to happen at a much faster pace. Mm. And this brings me to the blog on your website that really caught my eye. The title was. There's more men named John running large companies than women in total. Uh, mm. Is that a fact? That's a fact. That was, um, uh, I think there should be a reference point in that article to a World Economic Forum uh, study. So, yeah, it's quite sadly, um, that is a fact. And, 
Um, you know, the other sad fact is, you know, in Australia, uh, I'm going to get the number wrong, um, but it's, it's, it's roughly right. I think in Australia, it's about 148 years till we get pay parity, which is absolutely ridiculous when you think about, you know, how much money corporate Australia has made, continues to make. It would be really easy for any of the big four banks to say, I've got a male director here and I've got a female director here. They're doing the same jobs. Um, we're going to pay them the same. But for some reason, it doesn't happen. Um, and that's something that can be fixed pretty quickly. And as I said, if you look at the profits of major banks, major industrials, major companies in Australia, it can be fixed. It can be, it can be done you know, pretty much overnight. Um, and it just needs to happen. Mm. And we're going to come back to some of those issues a bit later on when we talk about mm. your current business. But mm. let's now go to the, the reason you got your OIM was for services to volunteering and the, the charity sector. Um, and I'll wind back the clock again, because when you were seven years old, I believe you were helping your mum with uh, wheel, Meals on Wheels um, deliveries or, or production mm -hmm. food. Uh, what do you remember of that experience? Yeah, it was a great experience. Um, I, yeah, at the age of six, um, started delivering Meals on Wheels with, with my mum during the school holidays. And yeah, it was, it was a really great experience for a number of reasons. Firstly, you know, got to spend quality time with my mum. So that was, um, that was fantastic. Uh, but two, just seeing and dealing with different people at a very young age and also seeing an adult um, and someone that I, you know, know and love and respected, like my mum, you know, deal with people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different socioeconomic groups. Uh, so, you know, I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, uh, grew up in Mount Eliza, but, you know, 10 minutes south of Mount Eliza, you know, uh, it still is today, you know, um, uh, parts of Frankston are, you know, very low socioeconomic, um, uh, you know, uh, groups. So, um, you know, we were delivering meals to, you know, quite a broad kind of cross-section cross of people, um, you know, people in, you know, in, in, in Frankston, families in Frankston, couples in Frankston to Mount Eliza, Mount Martha, you know, very, very different, um, you know, socioeconomic groups and backgrounds um, that we were constantly dealing with. So that was uh, a really great experience in, in, in seeing diversity uh, but also seeing how you know my mum treated and dealt with people um, with with all those diverse backgrounds and and you know the the way that she dealt with them was identical you know she treated everyone like a human being we tr she treated them respectfully um, she was very humble and and displayed a lot of humility um, in in doing the job and um, you know just learned a lot from that experience and being alongside her and then you know, as I got older I got a little bit more responsibility but that then led into uh doing yeah a lot more volunteering you know as i said as a first generation australian you're constantly reminded by your parents by your family by your community that you're really lucky to be in australia and uh even though you know i was dealing with you know racism and you know lots of other things you know growing up i i, I did recognize that and i did appreciate that and so at the age of 16, I started uh, volunteering for Amnesty International. Uh, you know, it was an organisation that really resonated me in terms of, you know, the work that they were doing was about human beings. You know, it's a human rights organisation and the reality was and continues to this day that human beings all around the world are not treated equally. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a developed country or an emerging market, you know, it, that, that is very consistent. So, um, you know, being able to help work on different campaigns um, was was a really, you know, uh, was a really great experience uh, because we're dealing with global campaigns, dealing with local campaigns. Um, that later then transitioned into uh, when I moved to Sydney, uh, I went on to the uh, New South Wales branch committee. Um, I started speaking more at schools and universities, and that still continues. Uh, to this day, uh, I was then on the board uh, of Amnesty International Australia uh, for eight years, and the organisation went from a two million turnover organisation to thirty in the space of that uh, eight years, which was a, a wonderful learning experience uh, because you know dealing with growth, you know dealing with you know the challenges of that growth, uh, but also applying that human lens you know to it in that 
yes, we were growing, yes, we had more money, but making sure that we spend that, you know, efficiently and effectively. Uh, and then I also spent some time on a, a couple of Amnesty International Global uh, boards specifically around finance and about reserves. So I had the uh, had the pleasure of writing Amnesty International's first ever um, socially responsible investment policy 10 plus years ago, um, and then um, had the honour of then working with global treasurers uh, around the world to then implement that policy on a, on a global basis. So um, I was able to use, you know, my finance skills, you know, together with my, you know, my knowledge of, you know, human rights um, and of the organisation. Uh, and, you know, what I've picked up right throughout, you know, my career, particularly through volunteering, is that the skills are just so transferable. You know, the the value that you get as an individual and all your listeners who are listening in today will say, oh, duh, of course, um, because particularly if they're involved in, in lots of, um, you know, not-for-profits uh, is that through the not-for-profit sector, you get exposure to so many different people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different organisations, um, which you can take that experience and use in your day job and then vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I saw particularly post the GFC uh, was that you know fine, uh, not for profit organizations really wanted and needed people with 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 a finance background um, because they were looking at the Goldman Sachs and the Lehmans and and the Bear Stearns and others and saying, well, if they can fall over and they've got people that understand finance, you know, um, how are we placed? And and so you know a lot of my um, not for profit work really kind of ramped up. Uh, particularly uh, post GFC, as more and more organisations are looking for people um, with a finance background, but also, you know, I already had those very early um, experiences and continuing experiences with with not for profit organisations, so I was able to meld those two worlds together. So I love the idea of leveraging the skills you have for great use in the organisation you're helping. And that is a key motivator for people is to apply their skills to, I guess, increase their impact in a not-for-profit or charity environment. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure there's a range of other drivers that could be going alongside that. Um, what I now want to focus on is your second quote, because if, again, if anyone's listening and saying, well, I'm not a finance professional, um, your, your uh, second quote was an African proverb. Anyone that thinks they are too small to make a difference hasn't spent the night with a mosquito. <laughs> and I think many of us have spent a night with a mosquito. They, they sure make a difference. So uh, I guess what you're saying is no matter what your skill base and your talents, there's there's something there to be added. Absolutely. You know, it is the power of the individual, isn't it? Because that's what that's what changes the world, you know, and, and quite often, um, you know, particularly when I talk to, to younger people or if I'm, you know, coaching in a, in a professional way, you know, even, even more, more senior people, um, there is sometimes um, that um, concern, um, you know, uh, you know, throw your hands up in the air, um, you know, how is this going to change, you know, moment for a lot of people and really the change happens. Uh, because it's a whole bunch of individuals that are, you know, that, that are making those incremental changes. So that's why I really love that quote, because it really highlights that we've all got a role to play. You know, it's no point saying, I'm going to walk past that behaviour, or I'm going to walk past that issue. Um, if you're passionate about it, go in and solve it, or try to help to solve it. Um, you know, speak up, you know, support other people. There's just so many ways in our day-to-day -day lives that we can make a difference um, and it doesn't involve quite often a lot of time but just involves um, some thinking and, and some engagement so um, yeah I, I just believe in the power of individuals because that's that's who yeah that's that that is what has made the change uh, if you look throughout time it's yes it's an individual that has usually sparked the movement um, and quite often it's the movement that's, you know, characterised as, as making the change. But if not for a collection of individuals, you don't get a movement. Mm. And I can see how that experience, I, I don't don't think that would have driven your current role, but it would have played nicely alongside your career arc, which is now to being the founder and CEO of the Global Impact Initiative. So perhaps you can explain what that's all about for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I formed Global Impact Initiative in 2015. 
And that was after spending uh, 20 plus years in global funds management. So I worked mainly for global firms, helping to build and re-engineer businesses um, here in Australia. And um, absolutely loved the, the role. Um, you know, working for global firms, got to travel a lot, but also got to, you know, build teams, uh, you know, build people, um, re-engineer teams. So it was it was all about, you know, putting the people and the business together. Um, simultaneously, as we've already covered, uh, you know, have volunteered and continue to volunteer on a lot of not-for-profit boards. So, you know, while I really love the business world, you know, where I was getting, um, you know, uh, you know, where I was getting charged up the most was was working, uh, sorry, volunteering uh, and being involved with a lot of not-for-profit boards because I was around lots of different people. You know, in the business world, I was around um, very much, you know, private school educated, university educated, uh, largely male. Um, in the not-for-profit world I, and on the boards that I have been on and continue to be on, I was typically one of maybe one or two males um, and and surrounded by females, but importantly, surrounded by a lot of diversity. So I learned a lot from that experience. And I wanted to put, I wanted to try to transition that into uh, into a business. So I had a this amazing life changing um, educational experience in 2013. I went to Oxford and I did the Advanced Management and Leadership Program, uh, which is a program Oxford only run twice a year. It, there's only uh, a maximum of 35 people on the on the program, um, and uh, my cohort was. 35 people, 26 nationalities, 19 different industries at an age group of 35 to 65. So as I like to refer to it, it was my uh, diversity on steroids um, uh, experience because it was just in your face. Uh, mm. You know, we're working on case studies, we're working on problems and, you know, uh, just some of the best questions, some of the best answers just come from people that are looking at a problem through a total, totally different lens. Mm. Uh, and at the same time and simultaneously, I'd been, you know, learning about this concept of impact investing, studying it, um, and, you know, having that opportunity to go to Oxford and, and do the program and more importantly, be surrounded by this incredible group of people who are still personal friends to this day. Um, I just thought this is the way that I want to, you know, this is the way that I want to see out the rest of my career, you know, embedding diversity, equity, inclusion into a business, but also these concepts of impact investing, which is about sustainable financial returns and also measurable intentional social impact. So today, the, the Business Global Impact Initiative, we work in five main impact areas, gender equality, Indigenous communities, health, housing and climate. And we work in two very distinctive, well, we, we play two very distinctive roles. One is that we will create funds. So we've created the world's first actively managed impact fund for women and girls. And we've partnered with a fund manager called Rubico, um, and that's the Global Impact Initiative Gender Equality Fund. Uh, and the other part of our work is where we advise and we help and manage the construct of, of impact investing funds. Um, as an example, we're working with a disability service provider here in Sydney. Um, we're constructing a affordable housing fund, which will have, um, which will provide housing for people with disabilities, essential workers, women escaping domestic violence, and also at-risk children. So we manage that process for the disability service provider. We set up the fund. We'll bring investors into the fund. We'll manage the building process. Um, to make sure that the buildings that are that are that are built, the apartments that are built, are sustainable. Um, they're cheap to run through the design, but also through solar and battery um, and 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 other renewable energy. So um, you know it's 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 a it, and and it will be a fund you know like our gender equality fund that will get you you know market rate of returns, so sustainability in in financial returns, but also measurable, actionable, intentional social impact, um, all measured to the, United, uh, to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So in a housing project, as an example, um, that we're doing, um, we can measure, map and monitor the social impact to 17, uh, sorry, to 16 of the 17 SDGs, which is, which is a great achievement, which is everything from reducing poverty, gender equality, 
increased education, engagement with Indigenous communities, uh, climate, uh, innovation, these can all be achieved uh, through housing solutions. So, yeah, it's fantastic, Phil, because, you know, every day I get to, um, you know, uh, incorporate, build, um, be very innovative um, in structuring solutions, but all our solutions need to be scalable. Um, they need to be sustainable from a financial perspective, but they need to um, be very intentional uh, and actionable around the social impact that we're creating. Mm. I don't know if there's a name for that piece in the hourglass in right in the middle where the sand goes through the thinnest point, but it reminds me that you're sort of that piece, I think, in the hourglass because there's a lot of investment money out there. There's trillions of dollars in our mm. superannuation system alone, and there is such a demand for good investments in areas like housing. Mm. There is a real talent, I think, for unlocking and bringing those two together. So you must feel like you have a lot of impact on a, on a larger scale when you can get that right. Yeah, yeah. My my only challenge is, Phil, is that we we need to go quicker. You know, as a business, as a society, we need to go quicker. And um, I've I've never been in a role where I've had you know um, so many positive conversations. Um, but the action, you know, does seem to take a little bit longer. And and as you say, the there is no shortage of money in the world. You know, we we have there's plenty of money around. There's plenty of money just in our superannuation system. You know, could you imagine if you know even one percent or five percent of people um, invested their super in line with their values? So you know, if they actually um, were able to say, I really want to solve the housing crisis. How do I do that? Um, give me an investment product that, that that does that. You know, I want to participate in improving gender equality. Give me a product in my super um, that can help me do that. So, um, you know, if more and more people were having those conversations, more and more of these products, you know, like the ones that we've developed, will will be developed. But they they take a long time. And and on one side. Um, they should take a long time because you're engaging, you know, the finance world and, and engaging, you know, the current system uh, and, and but ensuring that that system of managing money is, is going to be sustainable, but at the same time also thinking very deeply and clearly around the social impact that you're creating. But yeah, absolutely. If you, there was a World Economic Forum uh, report that was done uh, and similar reports done by uh, JP Morgan and a few other investment banks that looked at the transition of wealth um, over the next four de decades, and there was there's 40 trillion dollars transitioning from millennial uh, from boomers to millennials over the next four decades. So 40 trillion dollars um, in the next 40 years will transition, and that will be done predominantly through a ESG and impact lens. So you don't need to convince uh, millennials and you certainly don't need to convince too many boomers these days either that um, things need to be, you know, uh, done more sustainably. We need to be more conscious um, in our effort to create impact. Um, and so this is a great opportunity for, you know, organisations like ours and, and others that are in this space, but just for, for fund, fund managers and the whole finance world in general. And we're starting to see that, you know, we're starting to see you know, banks not lend to coal projects. We're starting to see insurance companies um, not insure um, projects that have, you know, an impact on, the, have a negative effect on, on, on the climate. We're seeing fund managers not investing companies um, that are, you know, that are, that are going to be negative towards climate or have bad corporate governance or have, um, you know, incidents of sexual harassment and 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 abuse, uh, you know, embedded into their organisation. So we're starting to see that. My hope is that that starts to accelerate at the pace that is needed. And I'm not saying that from a self-serving basis. I'm saying that that is that is what needs to happen uh, mm -hmm. because we're running out of time from a climate perspective. We don't have 148 years to close the gender equality uh, pay parity gap. Um, these things need to happen. And the great thing is, is that your listeners um, all have a part to play because particularly if they're Australian and they're Australian workers, they have superannuation um, and they can influence the way that they invest. Uh, they can influence their super fund um, and, uh, you know, to do better. Mm. So I'm going to now throw you a little, uh, not a curveball, but 
You gave me a third quote, and I'm just going to ask you purely, what does this mean to you? I don't know if it's how connected it is to what we've just discussed. Um, it was from Maya Angelou. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Why did you pick that one out? Yeah, I love that quote because it breaks it down to the very, very simple need that we all have as human beings and is that to to be made to be felt yeah is, and that is to be felt uh you know and to know that we're human um and so you know we all have this uniting part of of all of us which is we all have a beating heart um and we want to be treated like human beings we want to feel like human beings um and um it really kind of focused focuses in on treating people others uh, treating others with respect uh and uh you know that's what i really love about that quote and that what it that's what it means to be you know means to me but also something that i um you know like to practice and and hopefully implement on a day-to-day basis is that you know through conversations through interactions you know through the through the small and the big things that we do every day um, we are acting. We are interacting with human beings. We're not interacting with spreadsheets. Um, we are act- interacting with human beings, and it is incumbent upon all of us uh, to treat each other um, with respect. Mm, that's a great philosophy. I, I have one final question before we go into a, a wrap with a couple of quick fire questions. But that final question is: I look at the number of board roles you have, the amount of volunteering you do, and you're the CEO of, of the Global Impact Initiative. Um, how do you balance all that just from a general life perspective? Um, you've got a family <laughs> as well. How does, does your family see you there? How do you get that right? Yeah, my family sees me occasionally, which is nice uh, for them uh, and, 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 and more so for me. <laughs> but um, no, I, I've always been pretty good, Phil, at, um, at prioritising. And so I'm quite an organised person, um, I'm quite a focused person. Um, I don't waste uh, too many minutes or too many hours in the day. Um, and you know, the great thing about volunteering is that it's incredibly energizing. So I always, you know, I say I get a lot more out of volunteering than the organization um, gets out of me. Um, and, I, and I truly believe that, you know, just that ability to be around different people, different causes, but we're all on that same path of, of, of positive change, you know, really does energize me. Um, I, I have also relied on the less sustainable uh, uh, method of, 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 of not sleeping too much. Um, and when I say less sustainable, it's, it's, it's becoming less sustainable as, as I get older. Um, I've, I, I guess I've been one of those people that have always been, you know, an early riser. Um, and because of that, I've generally... Um, you know, being so tired that I have to go to bed <laughs> at a reasonable time. So, you know, I, I, I do get up probably earlier than most. Um, and yeah, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at prioritizing, but I also just get a lot of energy out of the work that I do and the volunteering that I do. And the great thing that I have, you know, on a day to day basis, particularly, you know, running global impact initiative is that I'm living by my values. You know, I'm getting to do on a day-to-day basis, the work that I love, and that is, you know, marrying finance and social impact, you know, looking at how do we create more sustainable finance um, products, um, how do we sustain, you know, create more sustainable um, investment products um, that ultimately are there to also at the same time intentionally and, 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 and intentionally and, and um, you know, focused on action uh, around social impact. So really love that. Um, and it's energizing and, um, yeah, just helps me do what I do. Mm, that's great. And I think everyone really yearns for having that energy in their day-to-day work and their role. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you've got a great combination worked out there. Your final three questions, um, whatever pops into your head. So the first mm. one I throw out there is what, what does purpose mean to you personally? Yeah, purpose is all about making an impactful difference. Um, and why I throw in impactful there is um, impact. When, when, when I think about uh, being impactful, it gets me to think about the what and, and the why behind that. So, 
yes, it's about making a difference, uh, but it's also, you know, for me, it's about making that impactful difference. And that is why am I doing it? And, and what's the end result um, of, of making a difference? Mm, that's good. I like that. Second question, what are you looking forward to from here? What am I looking forward to? Um, Maybe looking... more sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're on the eve of a long weekend here in uh, here in most parts of the world. So, uh, yeah, a, a bit of R&R. &R. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the discussions, the concepts, you know, some of these ideas that we're developing around uh, affordable housing, around gender equality, around Indigenous communities, health and climate. I'm really looking forward to seeing those uh, continue to develop and, 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 and be implemented as well. I mean, I, I just get so excited when I um, can see what the end result and, 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 and I've always been someone that's quite focused on the outcome. So I, I'm a big believer that, you know, any, any problem should always start with what's the outcome and what's the end. Uh, results. So I can see the end. Um, the challenge, you know, that our business has and many others is that, you know, to get to that end, there's a lot of convincing, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of discussion, you know, there's money involved, you know, there's all these, you know, bits that need to fall in place. But that is also part of the uh, part of the journey, uh, part of the education process that needs to happen. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm excited about is seeing a lot of these, you know, projects, investments, um, you know, discussions that we're having with a wide variety of, and, and this is also the beauty of the work that we do. Um, it's not about, you know, it, it, it's not about reinventing the wheel. It's about using the wheel better. Uh, and so if we, we're working with government, we're working with investors, we're working with corporates, social enterprises, not-for-profits. We're not saying that the model is broken. What we're saying is we just need to to do better uh, and you know the benefit of the work that we do and the thing i love is that we put all these previous disparate groups and they're only disparate because society just tells us that governments need to talk to other governments and corporates talk to other corporates and the un talks to other parts of the un but they don't talk externally but when you actually put all those groups in a room and get them talking they quickly realize that they all should have been talking a long time ago because they're all aligned in terms of their purpose. Um, mm. And so that's what I'm looking forward to continue to do, having those discussions, using the ecosystem and, and, and finding solutions to these very big problems. Mm. Great. And final question, and this is quite a broad piece of advice I'm looking for here or for, for anyone listening in general. Is there one tip that you could bring out or, or share with us which has helped you really find more meaning and purpose and and perhaps happiness in your journey is there one thing that you think has stood out that is a, a helpful tip to leave for other people yeah i would i would very broadly say live your values and and live your values in all parts of your life you know what i've found you know prior to establishing global impact initiative is you know at one point in time I think I was on about 10 not-for-profit boards and I was working a full-time job and I had a young family and I was trying to stay active and play competitive sport and do all that sort of thing. And I realised my, my world, my life was totally out of kilter. And the reason why I had all those not-for-profit directorships and volunteering was that I was trying to find that meaning um, uh, in my life. And, and, I, and I kind of felt at that time that if I could, you know, bump up one side, the other side uh, would be better. And, and the reality was, you know, I, while I, you know, was working in a job uh, and, and a role that I really liked, um, it wasn't giving me that, that sense of meaning and purpose and, and, and value alignment um, that I needed. So quite often, and, and your listeners will know this, you know, when you're in the wrong job, you know, when you're in the wrong environment your body tells you uh, long before um, your mind or your feet tell you. Um, so you, you listen to those signals, um, but ultimately uh, live your values throughout all parts of your life. Uh, and, you know, this, this has been, a, a, you know, a great learning for me is that you can do that. You know, you can live those values um, and, and incorporate into, in, in, into all parts of, of your day-to-day. That's great advice. And a little fun fact to throw in at the end here. We discovered, we didn't realize this at the time, when we 
connected that we'd both worked for the same organization at a certain point in our careers. And uh, we both, I guess, navigated away from that part of the industry. Mm. um, Sure. So that was very much around what you were just talking about there. Mm. So um, thanks, Giles. It's been wonderful hearing about your life and career arcs. And we'll include um, several links. Um, the Global Impact Initiative, for example, we'll put that link in the show notes. And mm-hmm. if you want to provide any other links to Amnesty or other organizations, we'll put them in there too. Um, but for now, thanks for coming on for our chat and sharing your Purpose Edge with us. Thanks very much, Bill. And thanks for taking the time to uh, to interview me and, and, and some of your other guests have been uh, really, really fantastic. So I've learned a lot um, from, from your podcast and, and thanks to the listeners. Uh, most importantly, for uh, for tuning in today. Well, Giles certainly has a rich story there. He's very motivated and engaged in life, and I love that. That's just awesome. Um, a couple of key takeaways I can, I can think of three off the top of my head is one that he's used his adverse experiences to fuel his own resilience and that takes mental toughness and i guess a bit of technique and i noticed during the interview he framed or reframed some of his descriptions of other people to really make it clear it's not necessarily about him it can be about others and their views that's that's driving these challenges but i liked how he did that reframing um the second point was he he's not waiting to be told to do something he really does seek out opportunities and I'm sure that's something nearly all of us listening to this or listening to, to uh, Giles could, could take away. And thirdly, applying his skills in a volunteering setting, just listening to him talk about the energy he gets from it. And that energy partly being from being surrounded by a much more diverse group of people too. So they were three great takeaways, I think. And I loved his quotes. I'll try and remember to fit them into the show notes. Uh, especially the one about the mosquito. I don't know if you remember that, but I like that. And his observation that there's more men named John running major companies than women in total. That was an interesting stat. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please recommend it and share it with your friends. And uh, I think it'd be great if more people can gain inspiration from guests like Giles. Until next time, I'm Phil Preston, and you've been listening to The Purpose Edge. Bye for now.